Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on the podcast has six WSOP final tables on his resume. He's been a professional card player for 15 years, and he's the founder of one of the largest poker training platforms in the world, Crush Live Poker, the one and only Bart Hansen. In the past decade, Bart has observed and analyzed more poker hands than almost anyone else in the known universe. And when it comes to pumping out high-quality strategic poker content, Bart is an absolute machine. Him and I are about to take you on a journey through the past, present, and future of poker while sharing our personal insights on coaching, learning, and podcasting that should prove to be pretty, pretty, pretty valuable if you have any interest in following those paths. In today's conversation with Bart Hansen, you're going to learn Bart's origin story into the world of cards, the changes Bart has observed in poker from the mid-2000s through today, the importance of maximizing your poker strengths rather than being a jack-of-all-trades, and much, much more. And now, without any further ado, I bring to you world-class poker coach, cash game animal, and founder of CrushLivePoker.com, Bart Hansen. Bart, good afternoon, sir. Welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness. How you doing? Good. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. It's going very, very well. Excited to have you here. This is, uh, you know, our, our paths have crossed over the last few years. Um, it's nice having you on as a guest well it's nice to be on i haven't really been on a whole well i haven't been on a poker podcast actually in quite some time i can't even remember the last time i've been on a poker podcast of course that's because i record a podcast two podcasts actually every single week and i've been doing that every week for the last eight years so sometimes you have to separate yourself from the industry yeah i mean <laughs> I can say I haven't really listened to any podcast yeah. since my podcast launched. I don't really have the time to do much else other than, you know, releasing three episodes, doing product launches, private coaching, all that stuff. I mean, that's just, that's a full life right there. I, I will say though, with COVID, I have gotten into podcasts in the sense of even just other podcasts, like using the podcast app with Apple using my podcast app on Mac. So I'll play stuff like in the background and I've got things like subscribed to things and things like that. The thing about my podcast, which I think is probably your podcast, obviously free. So you can just subscribe to right. Someone can just search for chasing poker greatness. Well, mine's a subscription podcast and it's not through Apple. So you can't search for crush live poker and have it come up. I mean, you can search and there'll be old stuff that will come up. But all a podcast is, an RSS feed, all it is is just like, it's actually an old school technology that used to come around um, having to do with actually publishing text articles where like this crawler, like, an, you know, you'd go to this URL and, you know, if an article was published on a certain day, it would load into the RSS feed and then it would show up in your player or in your browser. It's a similar thing with with podcasting. So my 
link, my URL, like when you go there, you have to put in a username and password. It, <clears throat> it will work in Apple Podcasts or it will work in any podcast player. You just need to know the URL and it works like normal, but it, it doesn't show up in the search, like in a podcast search. So people don't, and RSS feed is actually kind of an, an old technology too. If you just like plug in your RSS feed URL, like into a browser, it's totally valid, but in the browser, it will look, I don't know if you've ever done that. It'll look like, what the fuck, what is this? Like all a bunch of text, but that's how it's supposed to look. Yeah. A bunch of hieroglyphics just yeah, all, yeah. All, all over the screen. Mm. And yeah, I, I actually have a, a private RSS feed too, where I oh, get some, okay. some audio content for, as a bonus to uh -huh. preflop bootcamp, one of my courses. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. Like you can just assign the private RSS feed, add a customer, they sign up and they just get instant access to it and they can sign in. But yeah, they can't, nobody can search for it if it's right. uh, a subscription type thing. And, and podcast, the app podcast is one of the worst podcast apps to consume a subscription podcast in. Like I would recommend there's a bunch of different RSS feeders like iCatcher, Downcast. They're all much better for reading subscription podcasts for a number of different reasons we don't need to get into. But. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I, I do think though Apple Podcasts is releasing something natively with subscriptions like in May, actually. They're making a big upgrade to their podcasting platform. And I'm pretty sure they're adding some like stuff behind a paywall and giving yeah. like a landing page for your podcast. So, yeah, I mean, the only thing about that, that's fine. They can do whatever they want. I just, I guess it really doesn't matter because somebody would just consume. I mean, I could get somebody to take, consume my subscription podcast on a different app, but knowing Apple and I, you know, I own Apple stock and I have all Apple products, but knowing Apple, like it wouldn't surprise me if they somehow block <laughs> the ability for someone to do a subscription podcast, like on the outside. And then they bring this into their thing so that they take 30, 40%, you know? Yeah. Like they do in the app, <laughs> app store that, that actually would make a lot of yeah. sense, sense to me. Right. Well, let's go back in time and I'm going to ask you to tell me the story of how you got involved playing cards. When I, when I used to tell this story, it's, I'm like, well, it's not really all that unique. It's kind of the same story that everyone has. Flip forward 17 years and it probably is unique now, which is having to do with the moneymaker thing back in 2003. I don't know how old you are, but I had moved out to, that was probably what, were you in high school or something? I don't know. Uh, two, like, 2003, no, I, I was 19 years old. Okay, I graduated so, yeah. 2002. Okay, so yeah, so I had just graduated college. So I had, so I was like 22, 23, something like that. And uh, I had just moved out to California. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I hadn't really played any poker at all. Like I had been to Foxwoods once, but I was certainly not into it. Uh, I didn't really know much about it, but this was before the poker boom. And then where are you from originally? The Boston area, Massachusetts. I went to Syracuse for broadcast broadcasting and I, I sort of, I wanted to be a sports broadcaster, but then I sort of got into like the business of TV and, and, and then I thought I wanted to be an agent and I did acting. So I was like, I'll just go to LA. So, you know, like every kid. So right after I graduated college, I just moved to LA. I didn't actually even know anyone. <laughs> and, uh, I did that for like a year. So I got a bartending gig. I got really, really lucky where I got one of the best bartending gigs, Battle Ranch, everybody knows in LA for like a year. That was fun. And then, so I had never really played poker, but then the moneymaker thing came out in the summer of 2003. 
and for whatever reason, it just was like, oh, this is, you know, interesting story. And then I just started sort of playing with buddies, uh, you know, sit and goes. Like the owner saddle ranch, like we would do like a hundred dollar sit and go. You know what, what I mean? Is, like what like, is a saddle ranch? Just to like put this into context. Saddle ranch is the name of a bar. Okay. Oh, so just in, it's on in Sunset LA. Boulevard. It's like so I, I think it's still there. I mean, I actually opened the one. If people are familiar with LA, I opened the one that was in Universal City on City Walk, which is now closed, which is just shocking to me. Back in 2003, it was open for like 10, 12 years. Most people know what I'm talking about. I, I was there the first day. So yeah, I used to play with the owner. We'd play like a one table. You know, that's how I started off, playing one table. And then I got on party poker and um, played like one tables. You know what I mean? That's how I started playing one tables. And then I got a hold for some reason of Skolansky's book on Hold'em, which is Limit Hold'em, Advanced Poker for Limit Hold'em. So then I started playing Limit Hold'em after reading sort of his book. So I went into like sort of 2004, and then I started playing some little bit like some tournaments. I remember playing a Limit tournament back when like at the LA Poker Classic where like if you had a $200 limit tournament, it would actually get almost as many people as a no limit tournament, which now they don't even have limit tournaments really at that size. And I went really deep in that. I was pretty bad at limit. I just played super tight. Uh, But then I started playing at the bike 2004. And then I realized, oh, like you can be a prop, which is like, I saw these prop players. So if people don't know what a prop player is, it's at usually at smaller rooms. Like they won't really have these at commerce, but you know, they actually pay people to play with your own money because they need people to fill the games, right? Like if you have like four or five active players and they don't want to play shorthanded, but then you've got a few prop players that will make it eight-handed, you can see why it would be a benefit for the casino to have somebody on a wage, right? And what we would do is we would get a wage and we would basically get like 100% rake back. So you get like 15 bucks an hour plus 15. So you get 30 bucks an hour, half of which was not taxed. That was what it was at like 2040 Hold'em. So I started doing that. So I started playing. Then I became a prop. How'd you, how, how'd you become a prop? Did you just like walk um, up to the owner? There was and a, like, there's yo. That was kind of friendly place there. And everybody, I was going in during the day. So I found out how to do it. There was a guy there that was like the prop manager. All you had to do was really, his name is Robert Turner, actually. He's, if people know people in, in poker, like he's, that's an old time name. Robert Turner used to be the Daniel Negrano of his day of poker tournaments back like in the 80s. And uh, he says that he he invented Omaha, which is partially true. Omaha being like four cart, you know, like Omaha. Yeah. Uh, And they played it as a high-low game first. Supposedly, it was called Nugget Hold'em. So I supposedly they invented it at the Golden Nugget in Las Vegas in the early '80s uh, as a a high-low game, and then there were variants where it became straight high. But I, I think it started off as limit. Anyways, you can Google the name Robert Turner. It was a long storied history. So he was the prop manager and uh, I just talked to him. And he's like, yeah, just continue to play here. And, and you know, well, and, and that's what I did. And, and he hired me in 2005. And then really what happened was just dumb luck. Like they came out with this project, like the people that were running the poker room came out with this project at that time called Live at the Bike, which was this going to be this live stream. This was back in early 2005, this live stream of, online poker like excuse me this live stream of a live poker game where they were going to show the whole cards which hadn't really ever really been done before had never been done on a live stream now there's tons of them but they'd never been done on a live stream and um you know really only really seen at the world series so of course i volunteered they didn't 
I volunteered to be a commentator. They were going to try some of the props out as commentators, sort of because they were already on the payroll. So they're like, oh, we can just dip into the pro. I, I think the owner was the owner of the project, who was also sort of the GM. That person was probably doing something a little bit on the shady side by dipping into taking the props off of the floor <laughs> they were supposed to be to commentate. Yeah. But of course, I loved it. I, I, uh, I volunteered. I've always wanted to do that. And I was always good at broadcasting. And, and that's how. I got in my, that's how I got my foot in the door with Live the Bike and then my buddy Dave Tuckman. And then we just basically started doing it every single day for four or five days, four or five days a week for like two years straight. And I had never really played No Limit Cash, but I got good at No Limit Cash by actually just commentating. Like I didn't play hand of really like 510 No Limit Cash until maybe 2006. It took a year for me to jump into sort of their biggest game. And when I find when I finally did, I was pretty much instantly one of the best players in the room without even playing a hand. I mean, I realized that like after the first couple of days, uh, I had already seen all these guys play. I had seen when when you do when you when you do commentary, I I, I look at it like it's uh almost like 20 out 20 hours of experience of playing. If you for every hour you do commentary with whole cards, I look at that as like 20 hours of experience at the table. And the reason why is because you're seeing all the cards. You're seeing all the showdowns. You don't see any of that stuff, right? Uh, when you're playing, I mean, you see a little bit if something goes to showdown. But you might be seeing 20 times more showdowns, right? If you're doing commentary versus actually playing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I had a bunch of experience actually not, not even playing. So then I started sort of playing. And then that project sort of went down. This project ended at the end of 2007. I got hired by poker road after i finished on an espn final table in 2007 at the wsop uh when they used to like televise like on actual espn like some of the 1500s i was on the final table with alex jacob actually who finished second people might know from jeopardy the guy with the big fro or poker right <laughs> that's where that was where i knew alex jacob first was that the too. yeah <laughs> he, he was like a uh back in the day very very successful poker player like in 2005 through yeah, yeah, a lot uh, of tournament a lot, a yeah. lot of good tournament results for sure so, I, I actually didn't realize that live at the bike had been around for like 16 years like that project is well it stopped so it went from 2005 to 2007 well it went from two, it, it stopped in march of two, february of 2007 so it was around for two years and then it stopped and then it came back in 2011 the thing is is that you can actually go Live the bike, you know, obviously they've got a big YouTube now where they, you know, they stream some of this stuff and you can go to Live the Bike's YouTube and uh, click on like videos and then do a reverse filter by oldest video. If you know how to do that, like the video, a lot of the old videos, most of them are actually up. In fact, they might even have the, I think they even have the first episode up. So if you want to see me commentating from like February of 2005, it's up there. Wow. That's that's hilarious and it's, and it's uh you know you can see like the video quality it's like 480p <laughs> yeah um this was before there was any of those so they didn't that guy from australia who basically builds these rfid graphics now i mean you can anybody and their mother can have a poker live stream now because it's so easy because all you have to do like this guy, there's one system that everybody buys and as long as you have a poker table and you can hook up the cameras you can do it. 
And now it's even easier because it comes with like an auto mode, meaning that you don't need someone even controlling the cameras. The software will actually control the cameras, um, cut back and forth along with the flop and stuff like that. But back in the day, there was no RFID graphics. There was a cutout in the felt, a, like 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 the old school English poker. Have you ever seen it? Like with the window, like there was a cutout in the felt. Like yeah, like a, it's like like a yeah. peephole basically. Well, that peephole's di- peephole is like a camera, lipstick camera. That's slightly different, but this was a cutout in the felt with glass, and you'd put your cards down, and then if they had somebody write like a system where there was somebody that would manually like select what whole card someone had. Like it would be like a little a visual sort of icon where you'd see all the cards in the deck and you'd click on king of spades, queen of hearts. You know what I mean? Like there'd be two boxes Mm -hmm. and then you'd have to fold away the hand. So that's how it was actually done back in the day. I know what you're talking about. Those like glass things where you put both both cards over them and it just reads it from the bottom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But but there was no barcodes or scan. You know, it's not was that was not RFID. Yeah, it basically just ma- all manual entry, somebody just producing it, right? Right. They had a, I mean, there was a software program that was built so that someone could click on and select the cards, and then there was an overlay. And um, the RFID actually works, too, with an overlay. If people understand, like, green screen and a little bit of green screen and stuff like that. But if you were ever watching a weatherman, or you can do this at home, too, you know, if you have a certain color behind you, you can put certain backgrounds behind you. Um, that's what a green screen is. So it's a similar concept where you have on a poker stream, you have a poker feed, like you have the the camera, right? Showing around. And then you have this other screen, this overlay of the cards. Now they're automatically generated back then. They were manually generated by someone selecting them and that's green. And then you overlay, like you put one screen over the other and the green phases out because it's green. And then the cards just pop up and that's why the whole thing with stones and the whole, you know, what I try the way that it's always been done is that you can never change the graphics, even though the shows are on a delay, the graphics are baked. So if I'm on a 30 minute delay, uh, which most shows are, the graphics can never actually change when they were produced live because they're actually baked into the, the actual program feed. So if you see some graphics like changing, like if somebody's changing somebody's whole cards while that person's whole cards are actually face down so that at the time that the live feed is going on, no one would actually know what their cards were and the graphics are changing at that time, there's something fishy going on because- How would they know? At the time that the graphics are changing, the cards are down. Yeah. Right. So yeah, Well, basically how it works. Cool, man. And that's like- Live at the bike fired back up again. You said like 2012 ish. Yeah, 2011, I think. 2011. Uh-huh. And when did you know Crush Live Poker come about? Um, as you know, live at the bike, you're getting started commentating. You're learning about No Limit Hold'em. You hop into the five ten games over the next few years. Like, did you stop working as a bartender? When did you wrap that up and move? Oh, I had stopped working as a bartender and like. 2004. <laughs> I, okay, so you're like full for like on 10 poker. months, which was like a long, long time. Yeah, so I got hired by this company called Poker Road, which is Joe Seabock and Barry Greenstunt's uh, now defunct thing that lasted for like a year. And I hosted their main show for a little bit. And then that wasn't really a great fit for me. And that's when I 
I had told them, oh, can I try to host this podcast called Cash Plays, which is going to be like strategy, but I'll do interviews. And they're like, okay, you can do that. And that was, the response was really, really good for that. Like I got, by the way, all those old podcasts are on my site right now, crushlabpoker.com for free. Um, if you just go to free podcasts, do, do a search on Cash Plays. But yeah, I did some strategy stuff. This was in 2008 with like Negranu, Durr. <laughs> I, still, I did a lot of pro- strategy podcasts for people who wouldn't necessarily talk about strategy. Yeah. Um, and then I then worked for the training site Deuces Cracked from 2009 to 2012. If anyone knows Deuces Cracked, like competitor of card runners. And then Black sort of, I don't even know if this, what did, what did they even call back? There's so many different Black Fridays. I guess Black Friday hit in 2011 where the yeah. DOJ <laughs> The bad one, the super, super bad one. Right, right. Yeah, that one hit in 2011. And then I figured out that I could just do this on my own with my own company. So that's when I opened Crush Life Poker in 2013. So that was my migration. Poker Road, Deuces Cracked, Crush Life Poker. Did you have any fear about starting Crush Life Poker? How how was it er early on? No? No. No, not really. I mean, it was just, uh, I was actually branded something different for the first year. I got really, really lucky that somebody that, I mean, I've gotten lucky in the sense that I've had people approach me about opportunities that have been very successful where they didn't know me personally, but approached me because of the work that I did. We talked about something before the show. That was one of them too, where that our mutual friend approached me for lessons <clears throat> because of crush Light poker, which got into this whole other sort of business venture. No, but the technology was a little bit of a, a struggle that first year because the guy who put together my website, it was kind of shitty. And then I had a customer be sort of approach me. Like I was complaining about the performance of the website. Like there was issues. And um, then a customer said, Oh, like I can build this website for you, you know, here are the issues. And then, you know, that was, that was that, but in terms of it being scary, no, because it wasn't, I mean, I was basically doing deuces cracked and playing and I wasn't getting paid like a ton for deuces cracked, like maybe like 500 bucks an episode, four episodes a month. So, I mean, I was playing (laughs) was my primary source of income, right? Like I wasn't living off of 2,500 bucks a, a month. So it was just all gravy. I, and I think that that's what I had figured out when I was deuces cracked. Like they wanted me to do more at the time for less. And I was like, guys, like, sorry. I mean, <laughs> the reason why this podcast is successful is because of me. Like I'm going to go out and do it on my own. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not gonna, you sort of have me by the balls in this agreement that's expiring now. Like, there's no way that I'm going to take on an agreement that's worse right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's basically what happened. Yeah. So basically you had your, your audience built up and Mm. your contract ends with deuces cracked and then have like this automatic demand for a thing that you launch, which turned into crush light poker. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really cool too, that like a, a customer just sends you an email that's like, yo, I can fix your website here. Here's all the things I can do. Let me do it. Um, I found the same thing is true 
in my business venture where like if you have a problem and you state it verbally, typically somebody will just reach out to me and be like, hey, I can I can video edit this if you need me to. I've got those skills, which is like just it's pretty cool. Yeah, I uh I have done that a lot actually with different issues. I actually did it last week too with a specific issue because um, we just launched Crush Live Poker version two, which was sort of a long time coming. Um, I had been on the same website since the beginning of 2014 and there was a lot of people know in the computer sort of software industry or whatever, uh, there was a lot of tech debt on our website, meaning that like it was old. There was a shit ton of content and it was kind of breaking because of the way that there was so much content and the way that we sort of had to jerry-rig certain things with sorting that it was the performance of the site was really just very poor. So I went out and I hired during COVID somebody else and they built out the site and I'm very, very happy with it. And I'm about to make sort of a marketing push but I'm sort of in a testing phase. Like I call it kind of beta for like the first month or two. I just want to make sure everything is fine before I do sort of a marketing push. But I had had somebody do my marketing that I was pretty pleased with a couple of years ago. But I don't know what her deal, I haven't reached out to her, but I, I think she's on to other things. But I was like, man, you know, I see the way that some of these training there's a lot of competitors out there right now in the space. And I see the way that a lot of these training sites do a ton of marketing, which, you know, there's different approaches. Like sometimes you'd think maybe somebody's doing it like too much. Sometimes people's not doing it enough right now. I'm not really doing much at all besides like the YouTube, but I feel like going down and hiring a marketer that you don't know is a little bit like there's so many sort of I would say scams or inadequacy out there. You know what I'm saying? Like about who is this person? Like, what are the results going to be? Do they might actually know poker? So that was another thing. I was like, I wanted to sort of get a reference. If anybody had marketing, <laughs> putting it on your show too, you know, to, you know to, to help me. But, and then of course, a couple people respond. So yeah. I do that a lot, actually. Yeah, I actually have the same thing kind of going on with marketing where just somebody who's a private student of mine, um, is a marketer by trade and also plays poker at, you know, a higher level. And having both of those together is kind of necessary, right? Like you, because if somebody doesn't know poker, it's, it's a little bit tricky for them to, you know, get the language, right. Get everything kind of right. Uh, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are different, you know, obviously there's so many different social media channels too that are out there, you know, which ones <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, I mean, it seems like with YouTube, which is the the one that's people get the most, I mean, people consume like a lot of content. Maybe it's just because I'm getting a little bit old and ornery, but I, I just hate Instagram. Well, I, I'm never on Facebook. I'm not that old to number one, like, but I, I just, as a guy, even though I'm married now, maybe it will be different when I have kids. Like I just have no interest in Instagram whatsoever. I understand its importance and stuff, but I just, it's so vapid to me that people just like take pictures of themselves <laughs> and put it up. You know what I mean? It's just so, um, but I mean, we have an Instagram page, but you know, YouTube is really where we get the, like the sort of the most, um, you know, kind of like the, the, the most views, I would say there's like a lot of stuff up, you know, on YouTube, but it's sort of, 
promoting that YouTube, driving it to the site, it, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a whole different, it's a whole thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, and plus like marketing is, is tough. And like you said, there's, there, there's a million different angles that you could go about it. And so like settling into one and then trying to do well is tricky. It's more, it's more overwhelming than someone might think. And this is coming from somebody that like thinks a lot about marketing and investing, you know, more and more money into the marketing side, just over time, trying to grow my business and my brand. It's like, where do you get started? Right? Like, do you get started advertising on other podcasts? Do you get started um, making Facebook ads? Uh, Do you start retargeting? Do you start posting on YouTube every day? Do you start Instagram? Like there's Mm -hmm. a lot, a lot of different options and choices. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely, um, it's, I mean, it can definitely be a challenge and also email, you know, email marketing campaigning and stuff like that too. Yeah. That's my number one thing when I get less busy is sending a a daily email newsletter. Like that's my number one marketing tool that I use. And so basically like, I think that whenever I have my paid marketing up, everything funnels into, you know, the email list. And then that's where I kind of communicate with my people on a daily basis. See, you don't think, uh, I mean, people can have different ideas about this. Like my reaction to that and the reason why I've never done that specifically unless you're maybe targeting people who aren't paying subscribers might be that that would be overwhelming or possibly uh, a turnoff like I know just as a consumer of other things if I get too many emails from certain things I, I tend to just yeah and you know and pass so, them aside yeah that's that's sort of that's the number one thing like when I say I do a daily newsletter like that's typically mm-hmm. the first response is like isn't that too much Um, and basically the way that I structure it is a lot of storytelling, a lot of entertainment, just a lot of personality and no hard teaching, no real hard selling, uh, story based. And then, you know, call to action with a link at the end. Basically my goal is to, you know, write something that's engaging and funny and just so that people look forward to getting that email. Um, and yeah, there, some people do unsubscribe and like, that's reasonable, However, the open rates to my emails are typically in the order of like 40 to 50% on a daily basis. So the people that like you connect with and really like you, they just open and read pretty much everything. And the people that you don't connect with, they kind of weed themselves out by unsubscribing, which that's fine too. Do you use uh, like MailChimp or Intercom? Are you familiar with those? I, I oh. use AWeber for my okay. my email marketing. Yeah, I mean, they're... <laughs> I didn't know that this interview was going to go down this this nerd, <laughs> this nerd way, but but uh, yeah, I mean, I if you had told me that I would know about some of this stuff like 10, 20 years ago, I have no interest. But it's just it's it's and another thing that I've learned and I've become really good at that I had absolutely no interest in whatsoever just by doing it is 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 um, video editing. <laughs> you know, I did, like it's just something where you know I, I have a video editor. Uh, for my YouTube videos, because I don't want to do it uh, with the time and stuff. But just doing, I've done probably like a thousand training videos. I've just learned how to edit, you know what I mean? So now I'm pretty good at video editing. And I actually right now, I'll, I put up, I edit the TCH live videos, the sort of the best of ones that go up like once a week, which is another stream. Um, now they have one in Dallas. Now they have one in Austin. Uh, and I enjoy doing that. So that's just not, sometimes you learn these other things that you 
thought that you had absolutely no interest in. You have no choice, right? Like you basically have to learn how to do most of them. You can hire, you can hire it out. But like for me, when it was like bootstrapping and basically trying to limit expenses and just kind of learn like where all the buttons are, because I find that like just having a cursory knowledge of how something works is good when I can give feedback to a video editor that I hire just some fundamental understanding, but yeah, like, you know, writing sales copy, writing emails. Like I have just a stack of books on, you know, writing sales copy that I read quite regularly. I subscribe to newsletters that are expensive just because I want to, you know, do the best job that I can of creating engagement with my email newsletter people. And it's just like, you can't find somebody that's just like a, a great poker copywriter that understands the language poker players use and that can just write those emails on a daily basis. So like, yeah, it's gotta be me basically. Yeah. And, and, and when I switched over to this sort of CLP version two, we switched uh, our billing to sort of a new system. And obviously the the back end, the CMS, like the publishing flow is different than the old one. So I knew that I had to get in there mm-hmm. and look at it. And there were a couple issues that I wasn't happy with. And I just took like what ended up even being just like a full day and getting in there, solve the problems myself instead of going to like, like their, the vendor support. And now I have a full understanding of it so that I can, that's another really thing too. Like I had no interest in being a teacher when I was a kid, but that's basically what I really am now. And that's what I'm good at. I think one of, I think the reason why people uh, continue to enjoy my products is the way that I convey a message about teaching something. So if I can learn something like, for example, if I can learn how to tell my support person how to do this thing that's new I will be able, I have very good confidence that I will be able to do that well because I do it well, like in other facets too, where I'm a teacher. So, but I need to go in there and learn it. So I was really happy that I actually had that issue where I was like, all right, this is going to get me to, to learn the system. And now I can teach it to whoever, right? Yeah. Whereas if I don't have a fundamental understanding of it and then I hire people, it's just, it, you're never really going to get what you want or you don't really know. Yeah, you don't right. know what you want. You don't know right. even really know what it what is even possible. And, and you mentioned something there that I, I think is important too. When it's like you're really when you said that you're really good at teaching people, and I think that's something that like as people that own brands, you know, as it relates to like email marketing or YouTube videos, like there's only one Bart Hansen that has your personality, and there's only one Brad Wilson that has my personality. So that's like just a, it's a unique thing that only like Crush Life Poker or Chasing Poker Greatness can offer is just like the personality of the owners. Um, nobody can really replicate that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And I have this sort of found this kind of niche with my YouTube and the live call-ins, which was a podcast that we've actually been doing for a long time. And then we sort of got the idea where, I was sort of bouncing it off of one of my partners who built the site originally, actually the guy that was the customer that promoted me back in the day that built out the new site. Uh, and we were, I was trying to think about what could I put up for YouTube? This was right around the time that poker started on you. I mean, really Doug Poke with poker. I, I think he probably started the whole poker thing on YouTube, to be honest with you, from what I remember, because I remember poker was on Twitch and no one really put poker on YouTube, but it's kind of strange because because YouTube was 
still kind of big, like in 2014, 2015, 2016. So I don't know why it took somebody so long to realize, why can't we just do it here on YouTube where there's already an embedded audience, you know? So it's yeah. really odd. <laughs> I think there but, was uh, poker. It just, there was no like pure poker channels. Like I, I think my, my original poker training channel was probably earlier than Doug Polk. It mm-hmm. just had no production value and was just like plain explained videos. You never even saw my face. Like it was just like mm-hmm. not well-produced uh, poker training content. But Doug Polk was like the first one that, you know, added high production value. I assume he had scripts and it was just funny and engaging and just really, really good. Yeah, so I was looking for some content for that. I had done some stuff on Twitch, but Twitch is more of a thing that is, I, if as I understand it, I'm not big into gaming, but Twitch is more of a live streaming platform. I don't think that people usually go to, unless they're way into the content creator, they're not going into Twitch to to find, not knowing what they want to watch and then just finding, unless they're into the game and they want to watch past streams. It's different than YouTube where, like last night, like I'm on my smart TV. I didn't even know what was on regular broadcast TV or whatever. <laughs> I'm on YouTube. I have YouTube TV too. But mm-hmm. so I just turned on YouTube and looked at some of my saved videos or looked at what came up on my feed. You don't really do that with Twitch, I don't think, at least I, I is my understanding. And certainly my parents don't. And most people that are over, I would say 30 or 35 don't. Twitch is also not built into smart TV. So YouTube, I think, is a better platform for what we do. But I was looking for something to produce in terms of content. And my buddy Andrew came up with the idea, well, you're already doing this, this Collins podcast. So if you could stream this, you know, you, there isn't much extra work to be done because you're always do, you're already doing it anyways. Mm-hmm. So the only thing that we that, that really needs to be done is putting in the graphics after the fact. So I'll do a stream on Mondays. It will be live on the live stream, people will call in on the live stream, like I'll type out the hand like in a notepad, so that the the hand history will be in text. And then I take the best hands from that live stream. And then we put graphics over them. And that becomes our YouTube videos that come out, you know, three, three times a week. I find it hilarious that you described yourself as somebody not really into gaming when <laughs> your whole career commentating on gaming. I know what you mean. No, like video, video games, video, gaming. video yeah. games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I think that I'm actually kind of glad that I missed the boat on that. I mean, there's a couple things that I've gotten lucky with. I'm glad that I wasn't into poker when I was in college. Like, it, like in, in the sense that I'm glad that like my college wasn't from like 2003 to like 2006. I'm glad it was a few years before because I might've been one of those people that never made it through with online poker. I could see myself. And I'm glad that I think I'm just old enough where I never really got consumed by the video games were not as consuming as they are now when I was, you know, a yeah. teenager and adolescent. I mean, I had Nintendo old school. Right. But I mean, you weren't playing a game that could take like a month to finish and or a game know, that never finished. Right. Like it just never had an ending. It just goes right. on forever. And also too now, like their the games are so whatever you want to call it, engaging, real they're so good or they, they offer you a different sort of version of reality that someone might choose over real life. Like the games weren't that good. Like back in the day, you know what I mean? Like it was still just a game, right? There's no, no competition between like super Mario brothers three and like a bunch of neighborhood kids want to go play wiffle ball. Like you're, you're choosing wiffle ball. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. Yeah. 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 I would say I would, 
Yeah, yeah, I think that that's probably pretty. Yeah, if I mean, a video game was a video game, but you wouldn't see somebody like you wouldn't. And and it's true, like you don't now they have. I mean, I was watching this documentary, like especially like in Asia, like in Korea too, like they have like these camps for kids that have video game withdrawals or they need to get out of the house type of thing. Literally, like their parents send them away. Or these kids that like live in um, these uh, cyber cafes, like they literally like rent a room or you hear once oh. in a while having a heart attack from like not sleeping for like five days and drinking, you know, a hundred energy drinks. Yeah. I didn't realize uh, that was like how it happened that they actually lived there. Yeah. In Japan. I mean, those are some options, but um, yeah. So what I was saying is I think that's a good parallel that you said, like the games weren't good enough where you would ever choose them over going out and playing. Yeah. It was just filling the boredom <laughs> because there was right. a lot of boredom the way that we grew up, you know, we didn't have smartphones, didn't really even have the internet. So like just a lot of time spent doing not much of anything. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have the internet in in my house until I came back from college and that was in my first job and I didn't necessarily need it, but my first job, I sold spring break travel trips, um, for a season I needed it. So I was like, I paid for it when I was, I lived with my parents for like six months or whatever after college. And I was like, yeah, we need to get, um, hardwired, hardwired internet but i mean that was like in 2002 it, but you okay. know i mean <laughs> going down we're going down the path of brad and bart are very old right now. <laughs> i mean i didn't have i mean we used to have i mean you could dial up and stuff you could have dial up internet like in the 90s it was really slow but you weren't really playing any like internet games that's no sure. it was like a, it was like a dream of like man wouldn't it be amazing if I could play Mortal Kombat against like my friend at school? Like, right, right. <laughs> but you know, it's just a thing that like you wanted to do, but you, you just yeah. you can't unless you go to their house. I mean, the other thing that's amazing too is like texting, right? Like, I remember I fir- sent my first text. Like, I think I might have gotten a text when I was maybe a in college abroad, like in the early two thousands. But I mean, I, I just happen to remember. Texting hasn't really been around all that long either. Like I started to get like texts like 2007. It didn't really get really widespread until 2008, 2009. And now when I think about it, like I get ups, I almost get upset when somebody calls me who doesn't know me all that well, or just calls me on the phone. Like I always text someone ahead of time before I call them now, always. Uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I almost never call someone out of the blue. I feel like it's obtrusive. I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know for whatever. It, it's just a superior form of communication. I feel like. I mean, it, it's just consumable whenever it's convenient and yeah. cuts, cuts straight to the to the point. Um, kind of made beepers redundant, right? Like that was the thing well, where it's like two oh, ways. You, Remember two ways? That's what they used to call them. Two ways. The two uh, way pagers. Yeah, they, and they would call them two ways, which was sort of like a system. That was early 2000s tech, too. Yeah, it's... Uh, okay, let's get off this. Uh, Brad and Bart are both kind of old and remember when texting wasn't a thing. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Pre-flop bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training, over 60 optimal ranges, 
and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. John, I wanted to ask you why you decided to invest in a preflop bootcamp. Everything that you had done with me to that point, or I had heard you do, had impressed me. I love the podcast. I accidentally ended up in the poker power hour and loved that. And then I took coaching and then you recommended the boot camp. And at first I didn't think it was, you know, something that would be that valuable. But I was like, everything else has been amazing. So I signed up and then it just blew me away. And what about boot camp blew you away? Like it started off slow. Like I'm learning these ranges and I'm not even understanding what you're talking about. And then all of a sudden, as I start to understand what we're doing with the three bets, the four bets, all of a sudden it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh my God, how do I not know this stuff? This is amazing. The more I studied them, I started to understand why they were constructed sometimes. Like I'd be like, that's why that's like that. And that would lead to more revelations and just a better understanding of poker in general. Do you have any interesting takeaways from your boot camp experience? The most interesting thing about the boot camp, it's a pre-flop boot camp, but I feel like it's done as much for my post game as it did for my pre-game, just because I'm not in as many awkward and bad situations as I found myself in. You know, when we were doing coaching before the boot camp, we couldn't get through 10, 15 minutes of tape without finding mistake after mistake. And then once we did the boot camp, it solved problems on the back end as well. I know you've studied for a thousand hours this year. How do you think boot camp compares to your other poker study? Oh, it's crazy. The boot camp is probably the most important thing I've done all year out of everything. I would give anything to go back and to, to know that stuff 10 years ago. I can't imagine how successful I'd be right now if I had known that stuff. And I thought the boot camp was so valuable that I literally insisted you take more money from me and paid you more for the boot camp because I was blown away. I just thought the price was too cheap. And it's changed my game in ways that I, I can't even explain to you. If you'd like to join the next round of Preflop Boot Camp, which starts on the last Saturday of every month, Head to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp to lock up your spot. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. What, what would you say is the most unexpected thing that's come from your poker journey? Well, I think it's a combination of getting these opportunities that never would have really come about. And I would say kind of brand recognition or rec people recognizing me in the community is somewhat unexpected now, especially with YouTube. Uh, now, like if I go into a poker room anywhere, someone's going to come up to me and say something. I mean, I'm not on like the Doug Polk level, but, <laughs> uh, but that has been, that's actually a recent event. That's a recent thing, like probably in the last few years especially with the, with the, it just goes to show you the, the power of YouTube and, and sort of its influence, because I don't think I'm any bigger in, in the sense of 
in the poker community or, or, or necessarily would have had more followers, but people just more people know and know what you look like. Uh, how do you feel the mass communication, the ease of mass communication? How, how do you feel when somebody comes up to you that recognizes you in a poker room? It's, 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 it's fine. Like, it, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely not something that's, uh, that bothers me. And it's, it's cool. Like I have no, and I'm not one of those, I'm sort of in the middle in them about a neutral. Um, you know, I, I'm happy that somebody, you know, does that. It kind of gives me, you know, a little bit of happiness. I think I, I was more jubilant about it when it used to happen, like back in the beginning, but it, I'm certainly not the type that like it, where it's ever bothering me or anything like that. You know what I mean? So it's a little bit humbling humility sometimes i just i make a joke about i make a joke about it to be cocky with some of my close friends or with my wife when it happens <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> yes uh, I, I know what you mean for sure um yeah. like because you know so, some similar type things have been happening to me which is i mean to be honest at first it was like kind of strange right it, it, it was like a weird feeling of like Oh, this person, like, here's an instance. Somebody joins my Slack community. I reach out to welcome them and they send me a reply like, oh, is this really Brad? Like, is this somebody just like pretending to be Brad? <laughs> like, they, they didn't realize that like I would be so directly accessible, right. um, which, yeah, it's like, a, it, it, it feels kind of weird, but it's also kind of cool, like, basically the stuff that I make resonates with people in this way. And, you know, podcasting is a very intimate form of media where people know you by your voice and you, they just, it's a relationship, right? Especially if they listen to you speak for a hundred hours. So there's this sort of thing that happens where they kind of know you, but you don't know them. And yeah, I can, I can definitely speak to that. You're right. What you just said about they know you, I've definitely had these situations where someone has just been able to like go back into my history better than myself. Yes. Yes. And, and it's like, wow, like this person's listened to me like every single week, you know, I've done these podcasts now. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my site now to see what number I'm, I actually have to finish off the one for today. (laughs) This is on Tuesday, but I mean, I've done these podcasts now for like eight years. So, you know, I've, he, they've listened to, the last 400 episodes, you know what I mean? Like every single week, actually I'm on episode 448 this week. So you can do the math out for just on crush light poker. That doesn't include deuces. Yeah. So so it's almost 10 years, nine years, you know? And in a lot of cases too, people remember things that I say better than I remember what I say. (laughs) Like they'll, they'll bring up like a talking point in a podcast that I did like a month ago, but gets released like currently. And I'm like, I have, I don't know what you're talking about. Can you like tell me what I said to give me context? Because I say so many things that I forget what I say. <laughs> you, know, you know what the challenge though is with poker content and having such an extensive catalog too. And I, and I, and this is a little bit of a challenge for me too with new people that come on. And this is why there has to be some guidance and structure to a catalog that's really, really large is, is that poker is evolving, right? So like it's, a lot of the stuff that I might've said like eight or seven or eight years ago, I'm actually, I have this idea that I'm going to start doing and uh, I'm going to start putting it up on YouTube where I played a fair amount on poker night in America back in the day, back in the day being not even that long ago, like 2016. 
And even then, some of the stuff that I did on that show or some of the moves that I made or some of the moves that other people made, you'd look at it now in 2021 and be like, what the fuck are these guys even doing? And this is in 2016. How about like back in 2005? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, so even if it's just a few years old and it gets dated, people can be like, well, you said this like back in 2014, mm -hmm. right? And I sort of had to explain to them, well, at the time, you know, that was kind of the thinking. And now, you know, poker evolves, right? Like, I mean, this whole thing, and, and I think that the, 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 the ease in use of solvers, and what I mean by, by that is obviously Pio has been around for several years, but I think as shared, say, cloud space, server space, and computing power continues to accelerate, um, you're going to see more people use those types of tools in the sense of you're going to have a product like there's an app called Solver Plus, which are pre-solved, pre-solved things. So it's not an actual solver, like it's not doing it out, but it had bucketed different scenarios and stuff like that, where you can sort of type in a specific, it's only right now for like a, you know, a hundred big blind six max uh, cash or tournament, but it will, it has a database of like scenarios that it will draw from. But if you can sort of picture, and I think, I don't know, Postflop Plus, or maybe they even have some of these products now, but if you could go to a website and in sort of a web browser, like enter in a scenario and, and basically get a solved output. I mean, I think that's coming. So when that becomes readily available to everyone, it starts to, um, well, people understand the reasoning. Now, the whole, you know, there's always this whole argument about like optimal GTO solution and live play. And I always say, I, I recommend the tools because they, they help you to become a better poker player and learn better. Like using the outputs of an optimal scenario in a live game and not adjusting for like the higher V pips and not adjusting for some of these other live variables, it will make you a winner. You're just not going to win as much, right? You're not going to win as much money playing say quote unquote optimal in a scenario. Not if you are playing optimal versus optimal ranges in live poker, that input information is not correct because you're not playing against optimal ranges. Right. So yeah, GTO can never be wrong, right? But if you're just going into a solver and, and, and saying, well, you know, this guy check raised me on the turn, what's the optimal response? And the check raising range is nowhere near what is optimal, right? You're not going to get, the, you know, the best solution. The point being though, is, is that the easiest part of this, all the stuff is preflop. And in Hold'em, I think that's where the mistakes are still made. I mean, the biggest mistakes, right, are, are made um a lot of times preflop but it's not really hard for someone to actually figure out now through just raw brute computing force what you're so, sort of supposed to do preflop yeah and i think one of the easiest things is, is actually like you're not really supposed to call raises sort of in the field kind of like unless you're on the button you know what i mean <laughs> it's um because of squeezing because of positional disadvantage uh i think nowadays the value of suited connectors have actually gone down, even in deeper stack games. Yep. You know what I mean? People Su are, suited kings have gone up. Suited connectors have gone down. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. So, and that really only has come about through sort of computer aid. Right. You know what I mean? And, yeah, I mean, and, and that's, different, different flop textures and sizing, right? Yeah, that, that's why I, my first course was preflop bootcamp 
because it was like, this is a thing that you have to get right. And it's a thing that you can learn. So let's spend a week just bearing down into, you know, having your, your preflop strategy down pat. And then as you know, variables shift and change, you can adjust and deviate from the boot camp ranges. Uh, because like you said, like, I, I would say that if you're executing an optimal strategy, the output from Pio in a situation where all of the variables in play mean that it is not an optimal situation, like you're playing against a fish, right? Who's like playing way too many hand, way too many hands than they should, then like applying that inappropriately is not optimal, right? Like optimal is something different. Yeah. And I think that that's really where my forte is. And I, I, I've kind of, it's not been a struggle, but I've sort of been thinking about how much I want to bring some of this stuff into my training. And I have brought some of it into the training, but I think that where I am unique, I am not going to be like solving equilibrium channel or whoever, like, I mean, there's so many different training products out there. And some of these guys do it really well with the computer aids and the solvers and all that stuff. I'm not going to be that. I mean, maybe I could learn how to be that, but that's not really unique. I think where where I where my value comes from is, okay, we're in this live situation where we know that this guy is a losing player. It's this situation. Something happens. What's your take on what this means, Bart? Like when somebody makes a move on this card, uses this type of sizing in this scenario, bets the river in position when they usually take showdowns, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. That's really where my forte comes. It's just from experience. Like you're not going to be able to really learn. You're not going to be able to learn that unless you go through your own experience. For sure. So I, I, I know. And I had always said too, like around the time of black Friday, I saw some really, really good players that were obviously, obviously big winners online come into the live realm when they shut off online poker in 2011 and it took them like six months to win in the game. Like they might've been like f winning five ten online players, right? Or winning two five online players. And they were losing at five ten at commerce. How is that even possible? And, you know, maybe it was a little bit of bad variance, but they weren't, they, there was an adjustment period that needed to be made, right? Um, for them to basically understand, oh, I don't need to be balanced in this situation. This means that. Yeah, like... Basically, that that thought of like, well, if I fold this, I'm folding my whole range, so right, I need to right. have something to call with, and then you call and you just lose 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, like, you have to make the exploitable fold in live poker when people just are not bluffing in these specific spots. And I've told this story multiple times on the podcast, but like right after Black Friday, I was playing at Commerce in the 1020 game mm -hmm. and, with a bunch of young kids, and we're all talking and like four or five of us were like regs that played against each other in online poker, like every day, <laughs> like we battled, like we all played on ultimate bet. We knew each other's screen names. And after that one trip, which I basically lived at commerce for a number of years, I never saw any of them again. Not one of them that I was playing 10, 20, no limit with came back to commerce or played live poker. Um, and I think that like what you said is just, you hit the nail on the head. A lot of people, I don't know what they did. I don't know if they got out of poker entirely, but they weren't able to make the live transition. Well, it was also the pace of the game too, right? Like if you're used to, if your only experience in poker is being multi-tabling this was, and probably 2011 was before really zoom or zone had 
been out too, but you could play like 18 tables. If your only experience coming up in poker was being like stimulated like all the time because you were playing, and then all of a sudden now you're going into live poker where you might see 25, 30 hands an hour where you were playing six max, 18 tabling and seeing 1500 hands an hour. I think that that would be a challenge for somebody too because it's it's the pace of the game. This is why I have a problem with long-handed live PLO. Even that's too slow for me. Like nine-handed PLO, it just drives me insane. Like I can't, you know what I mean? Um, oh, I know. That's why live tournaments, I can't take them because yeah, the yeah. pace slows down even more. I mean, I just think that, I don't know if it will go in this direction, but I always talk about this too. And I talked about it in a recent YouTube video. No limit in any form, whether it's Hold'em, or the traditional no limit, I always say is like deuce to seven single draw. It's like the original Kansas City low ball. It's always supposed to be played with an ante. That's why in tournaments there's an ante because that's like the old school. Like this two blind no limit with no ante, like that that should be a dead game, like Skolansky said, because unless the people are playing, and I'm using the term out of one of his books, like with invisible antes, as if there are antes, unless people are playing as if there are antes, which obviously most people do, um, it should be entirely a dead game. The most extreme example of this is these games in Texas where a 1-3 match the stack, which is basically uncapped, plays like a LA 510, where the open size is to 20, okay? Mm -hmm. So at 1-3, if someone's opening to 20, eight, seven times the big blind and there's no ante, you could literally just play like, what well, I don't know what the right, I mean, you could play what, 5% of your hands? Yeah. 3% of your hands. There's no incentive to ever enter the pot. That's not going to win you the most amount of money actually in those games by far. That would be way, way too tight. But if everybody was playing like that, it would be entirely a dead game. So if poker ever moves in that direction where even the recreational players are playing better and better preflop, and you see this, like you see a lot of games have three blinds, but an ante in the game is, I think is a must because it changes the ranges, right? A lot just like in a tournament, right? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I, I've been beating this drum for a while now, especially coming from playing on a lot of the Chinese apps where mm -hmm. they have three blinds and they have antis. And what you realize very quickly is like limping is not the worst in those games. Like limping, a, a player playing too many hands preflop is not the worst, which is good for the, the worst players. And also if you're a nit and not playing enough hands, you just get bled dry. Like you just can't sustain a win rate. So like combining both of those elements where it's not so bad for the fish to limp and the nits get punished, it, it seems like incorporating antes is like a no-brainer in the cash game streets. And also too, just for even for people that haven't necessarily studied tournament charts, and I'm, I'm still amazed when I look at this because I someone had give, given me like the solutions to... Uh, some sort of tournament set up with an ante versus like very small open sizing, like, you know, 2.1, 2.2. Like you can, there's so many hands that you're supposed to flat call on the button. Like what down to like King three suited or something like that. You know what I mean? Like it's, I mean, because the, because of the price that you're getting in the antes and stuff like that. So it just makes a, I think a better game, um, you know, with an ante. So regular two blind, no limit without an ante. I mean, again, like it's, when you're playing in Texas in two, five or one, three, it's still okay when it's a $5 blind game and people are opening to 20 because they're playing as if there is an ante. So it's still okay. But if people were ever opening to like 12, 
or 10 or min opening and people were playing tight. I mean, it would just be. I don't think it's ever going to happen in live poker though. I think like just there's the boredom factor where like, yo, we're here. We drove to the casino. We're going to play poker and we're going to, we're going to play hands. Like that's sort of the draw. I think of live poker. I, I I really don't think it's going to change in the way that online has. Yeah. Live poker is never going to die. Like, I mean, I, I, I think that there are, challenges for online poker coming up maybe they can take some stuff away from what i've seen in the chess community like you would never play someone for money in chess that you don't actually know the person on the other side right because of the computer aid you know you they could easily be cheating that's where online poker is going now too but they've set some stuff up with like webcams and proving that you know you have to see the person Mm -hmm. um to to prevent that but yeah i mean the pace of live poker is actually good the slow pace and the small sampling of hands that you get compared to say playing online over a certain period of time is really good for the game. That's a built in thing that will always, I think, keep live, live poker going. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's transition a little bit. Okay. So when you think about joy in your career, playing cards, creating content, building a business, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I, I think it was kind of a uh, approval of the content. Like when, so when I, which happened really early on, I mean, I get a lot of positive feedback about the content and that always brings me joy. It also creates a little bit of anxiety sometimes too, when I'm creating content, where if I'm not necessarily prepared enough, I will struggle through sometimes producing a piece of content because I think subconsciously I'm always saying like, oh, like, is this good? You know what I mean? But it always turns out like I'm never unhappy with necessarily the result. Um, but there's a procrastination level that I struggle with sometimes that comes into specifically uh, creating content, sometimes waiting to the last minute, even though when I'm doing it, it's okay. It's not a struggle, but just the anticipation that goes into it. But when I transitioned into the first sort of strategy podcast I was talking about in the beginning, Cash Plays. You know, I had done an interview with Barry Greenstein, who was one of the owners for Cash Plays, uh, towards the end, and he told me the story about how so many people had told him that like the best thing on Poker Road was Cash Plays, and that the, you know that's how they discovered the site. That's how, and this was a legend telling me that, and I had no, you know, real experience doing any podcasting except hosting their show for the first few months, which wasn't really a great fit for me because it was more of a, it was more of like a Joe Stapleton type of gig. Mm-hmm. And and then when I said, hey, can I do this thing on my own? I, I'd never done anything like that before. So when he said that, that was very reassuring. And then yeah, any type of positive type of feedback, someone emails me in and says, oh, you know, I used to be a losing player and now I'm a winning player. And also, I think the first, say, 10 to 15 minutes of each podcast, now that I've done for the last couple of years, is actually non-poker. It's life advice, investment advice. Like one of the things that I think that I brought that was a huge advantage to some of the people that took advantage of it over the last year is I told people about the PPP loan. And I said to them, you know, if anybody has filed Schedule C income, so professional gambler, whatever, you can just apply for this loan and it's going to be forgiven. It's free money. And I I think a lot of people just don't pay attention necessarily to like what is going on and they might've missed it. Mm-hmm. So I got like 20 people that emailed me in like, holy shit, like I would never have gotten this money. You gave me free money. I got 5,000, 10,000, whatever it is. I think it was capped at 20. 
for the year. Um, the PPP loan, of course, is part of the CARES Act, right? And and there, you know, it, there was a carve out for self-employed people with Schedule C income, Schedule C income, like you're self-employed, uh, where you could get it. And it, I have never heard of a story where the loan hasn't been forgiven for the first round. Now, in the second round, you have to show a loss on a certain quarter. There are two rounds now, but that's just free money, right? Or telling people like my, you know, investment ideas my views on home ownership, my views on cryptocurrency, whatever it is, uh, my views on tax. That's another thing too, is, is that I've gotten very, very uh, well-informed about specifically taxation and gambling taxation and crypto taxation. So I feel like I know more than a lot of people on that. One of the things that I say, especially for someone who's going to file as a professional gambler is you can't, people, I, I sort of give a giggle. People are like, oh, I'm going to do files a professional gambler, I'll just send it to my CPA. I'm like, this is such a niche thing. I would just not just send gambling taxation stuff to any old CPA. They're not going to know. It, it's, it's like as niche as doing law, like you're not going to be, you know, facing a criminal case and go to a real estate attorney to right. defend you. <laughs> you know what I mean? So. And all that stuff is good too. You know, it just, it, it provides value to your audience. It may not be directly poker, but like sure. if you can put something out there that gives them 5k yeah. check, check in the mail, <laughs> um, that's pretty impactful, right? Right. Right. Probably a customer for life. I probably have those guys for life. Yeah. Most likely the ROI on that is, is pretty high. <laughs> um, the opposite question out, like when you think about pain in your career playing cards, what's the first memory that comes to mind? I, you know, I never really had a mental, well, I mean, there have been some long, there have been some long runs in some long fielded tournament. It's usually tournament poker related <laughs> to be honest with you. Cause it's so, there's so much money at the end. Right. And, uh, I had been such a large loser in tournaments over the course of my career up until last year when I finished fourth in the monster stack just goes to show you live tournament. And that's including six final tables before that at WSOP events. I think that that was my seventh final table. And I was probably stuck like a couple hundred thousand over the course of like 15 years. Um, <laughs> and, and also too, I had finished 15th in the first millionaire maker. And, you know, I had that final table um, with Alex Jacob. It's just like, if you don't get in the top three or four, there isn't just, you know, that's where all the money is. Right. So it's it's related to memories of plays that I have made in the past that I would never necessarily do now. Like with two tables left in that 2007 event, like I folded like tens to like a button open and a small blind shove because like I really wanted to get on the TV final table. And it's just so horrific when you look back. Of course, I would have busted both people. But there was something, there was a lot of value in me making the final table TV at that time. And if I didn't have made the final TV, I might ne not even be in this career because yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been hired by Greenstein to do poker rooms. Probably that I wouldn't have been on their radar necessarily. So I don't know. I mean, it's like kind of a butter butterfly effect, but it usually has to do with poker tournaments. <laughs> For sure. I mean, when you, when you get down to like top 15, you know, you can smell it, you can see the finish line and there's a pot of gold at the end of it, but at 10th place, it's not so good. Or even down to like sixth or fifth place is not very good. Like you really need like the one, two or three slot. 
I mean, even even at finishing fourth, I came in fourth in chips on the monster stack with, and they start six hand, and I finished fourth. And there were a couple of things looking back that I think were mistakes. Where like, and it all had to do with like the money jump. Like for whatever reason, like someone would get knocked out, and then that next hand, you don't. For some, for me at least, it shook me out of the zone. Like, like at one point, I was the short stack because I lost like the first hand in that, and then. But then somehow like sixth and fifth got knocked out. So now I'm fourth. So right when fifth got knocked out, like the very next hand, now we're four handed. And like this guy who ended up winning the tournament, this Hawaiian guy, I don't remember his name. He like was opening and like really, really loose. And so he's in the cutoff. I'm on the button and I have ace six offsuit with like 14 blinds or, or whatever, maybe 17 or 18 blinds. And he opened and I folded. And that probably should be a shove. So, I mean, there are little things like that, you know what I mean? But it was, oh, I just like moved up $100,000. So I wasn't zoned in necessarily. Right, right. And then I got knocked out the very next hand, shoving the same hand when it got folded to me uh, on <laughs> the, the button a- or a few a- hands six, later. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I mean, that's like, uh, that feels just like very natural where the scenario changes and then you're acclimating to the new configuration right. and the new thing. And you may not acclimate directly the next mm-hmm. hand after. Yeah. Um, let's go back to your poker journey and then we'll, we'll hit the lightning round and wrap up, but your journey right now, like where are you at in your career? What stakes are you playing? How do you feel about, you know, your trajectory? Well, I mean, I am at a, a point in my life where through poker, directly or indirectly uh, I have and through different, whether it's lucky or smart investments or whatever, I mean, I have made enough money where I certainly don't have to play. The only reason why I am playing is to keep topical for, for content. So enjoy playing. No, I do. I do. I, I, I enjoy playing, but I mean, my wife and I are about to start a family. So I think there's going to be less and less time. So you know, I think that I'll be playing like once or twice a week live for content, which is perfectly fine. I think that one of the advantages of me having a name and getting in with these guys at TCH is that I think I'll always be able to play on these live stream games, which are like just the best. If anyone's ever watched this new thing, TCH Dallas, it's just like, it's unbelievable. So, you know, part of the battle in making good money in poker these days is getting in the right game, right? And uh, live stream games are some of the best games. So I think I'll always have the opportunity to get in those games. So whatever the stakes are, it doesn't really matter. Like it won't make any difference. Like I'll play any stakes. Um, but I haven't played since COVID. Uh, and I'm very careful with that because my wife's getting her second Moderna shot. I've been vaccinated, I, I think, next week. But because we're trying to start a family and there is complications if someone who is pregnant gets COVID, We've been very careful. Even me just being very careful. I mean, I'll be good to go when she gets her second shot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I was a single guy and I didn't have a family, I would have been playing for sure. You know, I'm not taking a political stance on COVID. It's just, I think that where I am, when I don't need to play for money, I don't need to take that risk, Greg. It's just like a risk assessment. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, of course. And like, my, my daughter has uh, a lung disease and, mm-hmm. you know, my dad had lung cancer. And so just I'm afraid of hurting someone that I love very much uh, because, you know, getting infected, spreading it to them. So it's been like 
I've been super cautious over the past year and a half. I haven't really gone outside anywhere. Finally, I think that like a few days ago has been like two weeks since my second vaccination. So that's good. But still, you know, my daughter's 10. She can't get vaccinated yet. So there's still like, we're not like out of the woods yet as it relates to like being, you know, overly cautious. Yeah. I mean, there's a political battle that's going on uh, with this whole thing. And I, I can definitely see both sides of it. One of my favorite podcasts is like the All In podcast, which is, I don't know if you heard of it. It's with Shamoff, Pally Hapitia, Jason Calacinus, and a couple other like billionaire sort of angel investor types, but they're really, really smart. And they have sort of a science guy on there too. And he was just saying that, um, and I've seen both sides of it that, um, you know, if you're vaccinated, the, the messaging has been kind of poor by the government. There really isn't a large risk in transmitting it enough to even necessarily mentioning it, mention it. It's almost like being like hit by lightning. So you have to like wade through these different, there's so much different information now. And I feel like, especially in the news, there's, you can't go, if I say, I want to find like neutral information, like neutral news. Now, where, where do you go? <laughs> you don't with, with our news. Like it's, it's just really, really hard. Yeah. It, it's, it, it, it's, it's a mind. It's a, it's a time trap. Like it just takes you so much time to figure out, like get to the truth of almost anything that it's not worth investing days trying to figure out like what the hell is going on. What I do is I have a friend that I trust. Who's like pretty much the smartest person that I know and looks at, you know, research. And I basically just ask him his opinion on like, what's going on here? Why is the government telling me after I'm vaccinated that I can't mm -hmm. go do stuff? Like why? Because it doesn't make logical sense to me. I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, he gives me his opinion and then I just kind of roll with that. Right. Right. And I, I think that that's all basically, you know, that's all that you can do. But yeah, I'll be playing soon. I would say probably in the next few weeks for the first time. And then, you know, I'll, you know, like we can't wait to get out of the house. Like I've been like you, like I haven't really gone anywhere in a month and a half. We're going to go visit my parents who have been vaccinated back in Boston. We'll probably take a trip to Maine, drive around. I'd, I'd love to be able to go into Canada and, and drive up like in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, maybe go to Prince Edward Island. I don't think that's going to happen because the border's not open, but we'll go through Maine. We were talking about maybe going to the Caribbean, wherever something is opened up where the restrictions aren't too, too much. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I do need, I mean, in 2019, like I probably took 35 flights you know, that year in 20, I mean, I haven't taken a flight. I had to go to Vegas one time in September for some different project for like three days where I was just basically held up in the hotel room. But yeah, I, I need a vacation <laughs> for sure. Um, but then I'll be back playing. You know, it's interesting. I guess there's online world series of poker. So maybe I'll go to Vegas for that over the summer. We'll stay in a resort and just chill out there. And then you've got, you know, the live world series, I guess in the fall. But yeah, I mean, Texas is a hotbed for, for poker. Austin, not so much. They don't have as many big games as like Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, but those are all like a few hour drive, a few hours of drives away. One of the things that actually I struggle with, I said this on my podcast, which kind of seems funny, is that now as I've gotten older, my goal is to basically try to always have my money working for me and keep be 100% invested like in something. 
So I try to keep as little money in like bank accounts. Like I've got my crush life poker business bank account that's separate, but my checking accounts and my savings account, like I'm not, I don't want that money to sit there and makes nothing right. Or negative with inflation. So that's one of the things that I've really taken, taken a look at. Cause once you have money, you know, you can earn money. So going to say play TCH Dallas, like in a, what the equivalent is like a 2550 or 5100 game, the actual mechanics of bringing 25k in cash, getting that out, driving there just to play for four hours, is is a little bit annoying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's a little bit annoying. Um, I have a box at TCH Austin where, I, you know, I'll keep like 10k in chips, whatever, add to it, take it away. That's that's easy. But going to a place just for a small period of time. And I str- and this was always been the case too with Poker Night in America. Like you go to Jacksonville or you go to Choctaw from LA and, you know, it's a 5,100 game. They don't accept wires. So, okay, <laughs> Christ, I'm going to bring 40,000 in cash to play for four hours. Is it worth it? You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's like, no. Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I, just, I just had James Romero on the podcast and he was telling me that like that's, kind of what he's doing right now is just providing liquidity for people using crypto who are like tra- mm-hmm. traveling and want to fire like multiple bullets in like a 25k high roller event like they just don't bring enough money or whatever mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. need money so he he's providing liquidity through uh crypto because that's really this you know gambling is really one of the last legitimate sort of things that you would need to have a large sum of like paper cash and, and, you know, I did a podcast way back when with the PCA. I mean, there were horror stories coming out of the PCA. There were rules internationally, right? Like if you, if you were traveling with over 10,000 in hard currency, you have to claim it. Mm-hmm. And if you try to hide it, they'll take it from you, especially coming from the Bahamas. There's a couple stories about that. Now, there aren't rules domestically, but you still hear stories about people just having their money seized, right? And now maybe you'll get it back, but... Think of like the amount of effort, right? You know, you're going to hire a lawyer and all that stuff. Now, I have buddies that just, you know, like go from San Francisco or San Jose down to LA to play on Live of the Bike, bring like 100K in cash with them, like on a domestic flight. And I'm like, I wouldn't do that. Okay, put it in your bag, you know, run it through the scanner. (laughs) And okay. Now, one of the things is that here's a little life hack I have TSA pre check which I would recommend to everyone if you have the, the opportunity to do that. You usually have to go to a major airport to register. But if you have TSA pre-check, not only do you get to cut the line, but you don't go through the full body scanner that the regular lines go through. It's just a metal detector. So if you can picture like a strap of $10,000 in cash and say you fold it and wrap it in a elastic band, right? So it's like a half moon. You can take two straps you can take 20,000 and double wrap that like, like this and stick it in your pocket. So you can walk through a metal detector with 40,000 in cash <laughs> in your pants and it's not, it doesn't look weird. Yeah. And it's not going through the, it's not going through the, um, the scanning, the, the hand, stuff. the handbag yeah. scanner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's usually where my limit is. That's, what I can stuff in my pockets. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty big limitation. It, it, it's something it, like, you know, traveling across the country playing poker, I've experienced too. It's like, how do you do it, right? And basically what I did at Commerce was just would have, you know, basically eight 
pink chips in my backpack right. and just right. travel with the chips themselves mm-hmm. back and forth. And it's like, okay, well, basically I'm walking around with 40K in my backpack and have to like keep it well, on me. And But that's, but California, I don't know if they're going to make it more stringent. California is really, really easy with that stuff because unlike it's the polar opposite of Las Vegas, like you can't walk into a casino with a 5k chip in Las Vegas and cash it or use it unless they have history on you. Those things are locked down. Whereas in California, you can, someone can give you 5k. They, they, they don't ask, there's no history behind it, right? You can have a bunch of 5k chips. It's just like currency, right? But you can't do that in Vegas. The world series actually does make it easy where, well, I mean, there are I'm like, I bank with chase. So I could go to Las Vegas and just, and there's, and, and it's quite common, actually, it's not even uncommon, like, okay, I'll just go to my bank and withdraw cash locally. Mm-hmm. Or one of the other easy things that you can do is, is that if you have money in your account, you can get a certified check. So I go to Chase and be like, okay, can you, uh, I want a $50,000 certified check in my name. They, they do that. You take it to the WSOP cage. Um, you endorse it, you give it to them. It takes like a few hours, they'll call the bank, they'll verify it. And then they'll give you 50,000 50, in, in um, chips, in Rio chips, uh, to buy in for tournaments. That's really the simplest way. You can deal with wiring or any of that bullshit. It's just a certified check. Yeah, just wait until they are able to like process money via crypto, right? Like that would be kind of the dream. I don't think that's going to be happening. It'd be so nice. It'd be so (laughs) nice if it were a thing. Just it's like, okay, I transfer you, you know, 40K in Bitcoin. And then once that is approved, basically you get the 40K and they do whatever they want with the Bitcoin. Here's here's the thing about whether I'm not even that much of a crypto bull um, Mm -hmm. necessarily. I do... And I used to be a lot more bearish on crypto in general before, even during like 2017, where I was just like, "This, there's nothing really behind this. What, what's the point? But now I've sort of become more of a, a bull. Not, not necessarily a bull, but I can see the argument for how it could take over for gold and money, the US dollar is backed by nothing, right? And if they just continue to print, it just continues to de- devalue. So if you have something that has a finite amount of... Um, that, that can't be there's there can't be more Bitcoin that's produced that could take over for gold is more convenient than gold and stuff like that. I, I, you know, I get that. What I, what I find interesting about crypto taxation is, is that I don't know how advanced the government is, the IRS is with this stuff because the rules are really interesting in the sense that crypto is taxed the exact same way that a stock is taxed in the sense that if you hold it for over a year, you get the advantageous cap- long-term capital gains rates. Now that's been in the news because Biden might change it to ordinary income tax. If you hold it for under a year, um, it's just ordinary income tax rates, right? But what people don't understand is that there is no like transaction in crypto, meaning that if you have Bitcoin and you buy Ethereum or you swap it for Ethereum or you're taking coins and buying altcoins and swapping them, whatever it is, Every time you do that, that's a taxable event, meaning Mm -hmm. that if I have Bitcoin at 10,000 and then I swap it for Ethereum and now, you know, at the time, Bitcoin is net when I swap it, Bitcoin is 20,000. That's a sale of Bitcoin. Anytime I'm swapping a coin, it's a sale that has a cost basis event. And I know that there are people that have done this like thousands and thousands of times with altcoins and swapping. And I just can't imagine that they're reporting correctly. So I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, 
I mean, it's it's a new it, it's it's going to take the government. I mean, look at how online poker is legislated in the U.S. Like the government isn't going to move ultra fast with you know creating these tax laws as it relates to crypto. But yeah, like anybody that uses like Shapeshift.io that switches Bitcoin to whatever Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, whatever it is they do, I'm sh- I'm positive they're not claiming that on taxes, right? Well, is Shape Shapeshift is not an American company, I, I take it? I don't know, actually. I don't know if it's an American company or not, but basically it's like anonymous. It's basically an anonymous system where you can switch out Bitcoin into like mm-hmm. Ether just anonymously. But it's not, it's not necessarily a market. Like they hold it and they swap it for you. You're not... I'm not exactly sure the mechanism, like how it's performed well, on there's, the back there's end. Plenty, I mean, there's a plenty of international crypto sites that don't require KYC. I mean, Binance, which is different from Binance US, doesn't accept American customers, right? Yeah. But you can still go on there with a VPN and create an email and you can withdraw, you could do the same thing that you're talking about, withdraw up to like two Bitcoins like a day. And there's no information. The reason why I ask about is it an American company is because like you go on like a Coinbase Pro, Gemini, whatever, Kraken, the IRS has their hands in that. They can go into those companies. Now, what's interesting about the way that they report, though, is, and I don't know, I'm sure you deal with credit cards, right, with your thing. So if if you are like a restaurant or like Brad and I, like our site, right, we'll get a 1099K, which is basically a credit card merchant process gross receipts at the end of the year, right? That's called 1099K. If you owned like a restaurant, you'd get this gross receipts from your credit card company, a million dollars or gross doesn't mean anything because it's gross. So that's what the crypto exchanges actually produce to you in terms of a tax form. It's not like if you're on your Vanguard brokerage and they actually give you, I think, a 1099B where they say, these are your short-term gains, these are your long-term gains, it's all laid out. No, they're giving you like a gross tax form. It doesn't mean anything, which Mm -hmm. I, which I kind of find interesting too, you know? Just well, they don't you know. A, like basically, like you buy it in a private wallet, they don't even know how much you pay for it. Well, no, but the ex- well, right. But I'm saying, but even if you were to buy and sell it all on an American exchange where the IRS has, oh, it just wouldn't well, tell you like the breakdown. I, I'm saying, yeah, that what they're reporting to you, the form they're giving you, and the form they're giving the IRS is a 1099k. Mm-hmm. That's much different than a 1099b that's laying out what your what your gain is. You see, yeah. what I'm saying like what your short term and what your long term gain is. What does that mean as it relates to like filing taxes with crypto? It just means that the form that they're producing is useless. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It's just showing growth. I mean, it, it, it would, it's showing your gross receipts. Like it's going to mean that you're going to have to show gains and losses. Like you have participated in crypto. Mm-hmm. But if I give you a form that says you had 500,000 in transactions on Coinbase. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. In right. terms of taxation, right? Mhm. So, yeah, it's just it's kind of I find it I find it interesting. Yeah. It, you know? It's basically it's like primitive, right? It needs some updating on how all the things work. I still think that people who are like super crypto bulls don't understand or they don't take into account like the possibility that the government is going to regulate it in some fashion or restrict it. And I know that they can't regulate, they can't 
I mean, they can say Bitcoin's illegal, but what I'm specifically talking about is saying like, as an extreme, what if the U.S. government says all exchanges are illegal? All U.S. exchanges are illegal. Mm-hmm. That would definitely affect the price. Oh, it because would, the ability yeah. to liquidate into U.S. dollars would become extremely difficult. The and, demand would have to go down. Yeah, and we saw that probably five or six years ago when China kind of pulled the plug and started outlawing mm-hmm. like the exchanges and everything. The price yeah. crat- cratered. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's all a lot to think about. And yeah, the, the future is very unclear. And I guess we'll just have to live through it and kind of see where crypto ends up over the next like 10 to 20 years. But basically having an easy way to make these transfers so that you can travel and don't have to like carry 40K in your pockets is would be nice. It would be a nice thing to be able to do. Well, here's the problem with Bitcoin. And I can speak to this firsthand because there are certain projects that I'm that I've been paid in crypto and certain projects that I've been involved that have dealt with trying to act as Bitcoin as a currency, as a mm-hmm. method of exchange. At least right now with the high volumes, it is extremely inefficient and expensive. Like credit card, like regular US dollars credit cards are a hundred times better. Uh, or like a Venmo. Like if you were looked at Venmo US dollars compared to like sending your buddy, like if I wanted to pay you back, Brad, like a hundred bucks for dinner it's much easier for me to Venmo and cheaper than it is for me to send you a hundred bucks in Bitcoin. And I think that originally Bitcoin was supposed to be like digital cash, right? And there were sort of two schools of thought, digital cash or a store of value. And I haven't seen any, maybe it's coming with the Lightning Network, but I haven't seen any real method that's practical to actually use any of these coins as as a form of practical digital exchange that you would use on a daily basis. Yeah, like some of them... Are better than a, Bitcoin's network is just so big. Like, there's a lot of demand on the network, and that's why like the fees kind of go off the charts. Where like mm-hmm. Dogecoin, as silly as it is, um, the fees for transferring are much cheaper, and Bitcoin Cash and all that stuff. And really, the fees for Bitcoin used to be much cheaper when Bitcoin was cheaper, <laughs> and the, there weren't so many people trying to use the network. Um, mm-hmm. But like you said, hopefully Lightning will change that, and it'll just get better over time. At least that's the hope. All right, so lightning round here, real quick. If you could gift all poker players one book to read, doesn't have to be about poker. What would it be and why? Question, man, because I don't read many books. I should read more books. What about content? Usually... What about documentaries that they need to watch? Uh, I mean, there's got to be better tournament books out there now, but just the concept, especially with like people that are not like way into poker, you know, like the, uh, even the old school Dan Harrington book on tournaments was really the first one that, that was like, you can shove with like a wide variety of hands to pick up the dead money, the whole concept of M and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but again, it's kind of a hard question for me because I try to stay away from that stuff <laughs> just because it's too consuming for me when I pr- produce so much content. Um, on my own, if you were to say, what about like a life thing, investing thing, I would say like, look into Warren Buffett, any of his books on like value investing and sort of indexing in general, you know, learn the, you know, just learn the power of sort of compound interest. You know, the, the true wealthy people that are smart really know like the two key things to sort of like wealth is compound interest and, you know, taking advantage of tax preferential treatment like tax deferral, like, you know, 401ks, 529s, HSAs, whatever you want to try to, in investing in this country, I feel like it's two different things. I mean, it's two, there's two battles, right? You're picking the right investment, you know, your risk tolerance, what kind of return. And then also 
how is it going to be taxed? Those are the, those are the, the two things that you want to uh, consider. So, you know, you want to take advantage of all of the, the programs that will tax you less. So I would say like a Warren Buffett type of thing for, for investing. I mean, and that's going to be of value to many people, especially as poker players get more successful and their bankroll grows. Um, you're going to need to find investments. You're going to need to understand like how to manage your money, how to not pay or how, how to pay, you know, the smallest amount of taxes that you can with your occupation within the confines of what is legal, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest thing too, not to get too specific, just people that just don't even know is just, you can buy the market through, you know, an index fund. Like I use Vanguard, like these things cost zero now, 0% basically. Yeah. Like total stock, total stock. Yeah. As spy is a spider. Yeah. That's an ETF. So it trades like a stock and you're buying the spy is well, the S and P 500. There are also ETFs that are total stock market, like VTI. That's where most of my money is in Vanguard. VTI is a total stock market ETF, a little Mm -hmm. bit more exposure. So you're just buying the entire market. So you can look at the S&P each day. That's what you're up and that's what you're down. And over the last 70 years, you know, there's been some volatility, but it's returned like 8% compounded. You can Google compound interest calculator. It's actually, you can go the the government's site is actually one of the best ones to do. And you can just play out like if I uh, deposit $100,000 and I have 8% compound annual interest on this, like how much money am I going to have like in 20 years? And it's astounding, really. It really is astounding uh, how compound interest works, like how much it is. For sure. I mean, in the same way that like, I think exponential growth is related to the pandemic was astounding. People don't, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around stuff like that. Like exponential growth where like things are doubling like on a daily basis. Well, that's a problem as it relates to, you know, like a pandemic type situation. But like over time, as compound interest get keeps getting added and added and added, like you said, it's astounding how much money you can make over a long time period. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, and, and you know, once you have a certain amount of money, whatever that figure is for your life, like you don't, the money just works for you. It's like, whoever said, you know, the first million is the hardest, but then after that, because you can make money from money, that's really, I mean, that's inevitably the goal, right? Exactly. If you could erect a billboard, every poker player has got to drive past on the way to the casino. What does your billboard say? (laughs) Uh, Watch the rake. I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, how much the drop or the rake or whatever you're paying to the casino affects their bottom line. And that can also be included like in tournament entry fees and stuff like that too. Um, with the whole, this whole thing with re-entries where they vig every entry. Uh, you know, I had done an interview with some guy that was doing this college paper a few weeks ago and he was talking about how, oh, poker's great because it's a zero-sum game. And I'm like, where is it a zero-sum game exactly? You mean zero-sum game like when you're playing with a bunch of buddies, you mean zero-sum game? Yeah, it's zero-sum game there, but certainly not a zero-sum game in reality. Um, that's why there's like, 95% losers and like 5% winners. When you play, you know, a 2-5, 200 cap game at Commerce where the flat drop, not a rake, the flat drop is $7 a hand where if you go to the flop at $7 a hand and you play for a few hours and everyone's money is gone. <laughs> there haven't been any big pots. Where's it gone to? 
Exactly. <laughs> just load up your whole domain manager. If you put in volume and load up like how much rake you pay and like higher stakes people will just routinely pay like $10,000 a month in rake. I mean, that's yeah. pretty normal. And at one, two, it's really rough outrunning $7 drop. Yeah. And all the yellow chip games pretty much in California for in most clubs have the same structure at all levels. Mm-hmm. So that's why I say, you know, if you're in LA, like it's really a race. If you want to even profit, you got to play at least like five, five, because you know, do you want to pay $7 flat drop at three, 200 cap game? Or do you want to play $7 flat drop at like, you know, a thousand cap game? Yeah. You, you just got to play bigger. Yeah. Um, what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? I can't really divulge it. There is a project going on, but I can't really say what it is. It does have to do with gaming consulting and it's somewhat revolutionary. I don't necessarily know if it's going to happen, but it has to do with gaming. It has to do with poker and um, it's trying something. It's, it's trying something new. So like I said, I have my hands in um, a couple different consulting type gigs and you know, it sort of has to do a little bit with online poker and things like that, but I can't necessarily go into the details of it. Well, if it does come to fruition, you can come back and we can talk about it um, whenever you're allowed to. Uh, If you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would it be? I wish people would play faster in tournaments. And then I wish that <laughs> this might sound a little bit. I, I think one of the things that has somewhat ruined the live environment in poker the last five to 10 years is the influx of foreign players. So it would either be, I wish foreign players would change their behavior, not necessarily travel around in groups, make it so obvious that they're playing for profit or somehow restrict them from playing in the games. What do you mean by that? So basically people traveling from like Australia. Yeah. I I mean, I make a joke. I make a joke. I call them all euros, whether they're from Europe or from (laughs) South America or from Australia, but Mm -hmm. yeah, they come in and um, especially in LA, it was really bad. And the half the player pool at 510 were these foreigners. And basically what it does is it drives away the recreational competition because they know that these guys are basically here for profit. Um, you know, they don't speak English all that well. For whatever reason, their demeanor for the most part, I mean, some are better than others, but it's very serious. It's not a, a very welcoming thing. And they drove a lot of these guys into like underground games or home games, um, stuff like that. And I, I do kind of gripe too, but I don't think anything can be done that these guys are basically coming in for the sole purpose to profit, even though they're coming in on tourist visas. So they're not taxed really, um, which, you know, it's just a subset of that. But I'd, it's funny because, you know, the, the immigration debate, like in this country about how people are like, I don't want people from Mexico coming in here, immigrants taking jobs. And I'm, com- I'm complaining about the people from France and England. but i don't know if there's anything that really can be done about it so but it it is a gripe of mine yeah that's why you got the magic wand right yeah yeah. (laughs) wave that and goodbye foreigners (laughs) and 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 some of them are better than others some are losing players most are if they're going to travel most are playing for profit so even if they're not that good if you take somebody that's like a two or three big blind an hour winner in a live game which is somewhat substantial depending on what size of game you're playing and you just multiply them out. If you had a player pool of like, like at commerce, if you had 200 people 
that would say come in and play 510 more than say a couple times a month, right? And that's enough to support three or four tables always going on and more on the weekends. And then suddenly you take 50 winning players. Okay. They're going to come into the game and play all the time, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, and inject that into the player pool. You can see how that would affect it, right? Yeah, it doesn't take much. I mean, we're we're talking like Friday nights at Commerce, you know, 2013. There'd probably be, I don't know, four to six tables running, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, like 40 to 60 people Mm -hmm. or uh, 36 to 54 people, whatever that is. You add in 20 pros. Right. Yeah. Then it shit changes very, very quickly. Um, This was kind of happening like right as I was leaving commerce and then moving out of the live scene, we're like, you know, just a group of like five people from Australia or whatever traveled to LA because the games are good. Mm -hmm. And then they kind of go back to Australia and they tell other people and then like, you know, just word spreads. And then all of a sudden, six month cycles. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then all of it, all of a sudden the games that were really good are no longer that good anymore. I mean, I told this story too a couple of weeks ago. I'll give you one example. Like Hollywood Park is a small room in LA, right? Where they had a 5, 10, 20 game going. And I saw this when I, I used to play there quite a bit during the day. And, you know, there was one time where there was like one game or there, maybe there was a must move into another game. And so the player pool is not that large, right? And I saw like this group of Spanish guys from Spain. Okay, they were staying at Commerce or wherever. They drove to Hollywood Park like in an SUV or like in a car, six of them together. And they put their name on the list like all in a row. Yeah. And that, so that sort of demonstrates to me like that they, they don't have a fundamental understanding of what is good for the live game or they just don't care. So both are bad, mm-hmm. right? I would say it's they just don't care. I right. would say that's okay. probably yeah. yeah. So I have a right to gripe about that then. <laughs> you know? <laughs> because they're basically coming in and kind of like because it's like a limited time, they just don't care, right? So they're they don't care about the longevity because whatever they're going back or they're gonna come in cycles. But how does that affect someone who is there for the longevity? Yeah, it, it's Profit. tough. Yeah. You know. All right, man. It, it's been great having you on the show. We've went a little went a little over. Final question, where can the Chasing Poker Greatness audience find you, Mr. Bart Hansen, on the World Wide Web? Well, of course, I have my training site, you know, crushlivepoker.com, which is brand new, our version two. So if you haven't been over to the site, you can check it out. You can sign up for free. Um, Anybody listening to this can um, actually, you know what, I'm going to create a new code for this show so I can track it. But um, you can put in the code BO, or actually... uh, CPG 2021, CPG 2021. And uh, that will get you the first month for free CPG 2021, um, which is like a $40 value. And then, you know, you can see me on YouTube. Like if you subscribe to um, Carside Poker on YouTube, that's where I put out a lot of free content too. And awesome, man. You can also go to chasingpokergreatness.com slash Bart dash Hanson. And you can click through to Crush Life Poker and you'll oh, see, cool. see that link on the show page whenever this goes live too. Awesome. Yep. It's been great having you, man. Thank All you right, very great. much. And uh, have, a, have a good rest of your day. All right. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. 
Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.